Good. How many of you identified with that song? Thank you, Goldie. We love Goldie. And she's been with us for years, and we appreciate her. I'm glad, you know, I wish I could sing solos. I can't sing solos. I can preach, but I can't sing solos. How many of you wish you could really sing a solo? So God gives gifts to everybody. Amen? All right, turn to 2 Kings chapter 13. And I'm going to finish out the Elisha series today, the prophet of restoration. We're going to read two brief verses, 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21. 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21. We're calling this today the 14th miracle. Elisha was the prophet of restoration. Elijah was the prophet of repentance. Elisha was the prophet of restoration. And even in his death, he brought restoration. So today, the 14th miracle. Let's read 2 Kings 13, verse 20. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. Now look what happened. The raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying the man, or a man, as they, we don't know who they were, and we don't know who the man was. Unknown barriers, unknown buried. As they were burying a man, they suddenly, suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word today. Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn your name and tell them this is going to be good today. Now, let me just tell you the story that led up to this. This is the end of Elisha's life. He's buried. He dies, and he's buried in a tomb. Now, please understand that even though the Bible says here that this, this man, when they buried him, was let down into a grave, Elisha's tomb was probably more like Jesus' tomb. It was a, a, a cave-like tomb hewn or, or cut out of rock on the side of a cliff. So when Elisha was buried, and Josephus, the historian, tells us that it was a huge, magnificent funeral. He got huge honor, received huge honor. When he was buried, he was buried into the side of a cliff in rock. And they set him in it, and again, Josephus says that a stone was probably rolled over it. Now, here's what happened. He's buried in the sepulcher, and now later, we don't know how much later, a man, an unknown man, an Israelite, a child of Israel, a Jewish man, dies. And his friends set up the funeral. And the Bible says they go and they, they are taking him to bury him. Now, there was... Something going on. Israel was weakening. And because Israel was weakening, bands of raiders like these Moabites were making their way, cutting their way deeper and deeper into the land of Israel, making raids. When they would make these raids, they would murder, they would pillage, they would rape, they would steal. Israel, because of Israel's forsaking God, was losing protection, losing power. The hand of God was not protecting them as in days gone by. Elisha is now dead, so the two prophetic ministries, Elijah and Elisha, 
that have overseen Israel and tried to steer Israel back are now both gone. So these bands of raiders are getting bolder and bolder in their attacks. The Bible intimates, it hints, it suggests that this was a particular time of year that they were used to these Moabites coming in. And they went deeper and deeper into the land every time. So this was sort of like business as usual. And these men that were going to bury this man knew when they spied in the distance this band of raiders that they were in trouble because these were murderers. These were, as it were, the terrorists of that day. So they had a plan to bury this man somewhere in the vicinity where they saw these raiders. When they saw these raiders, these thieves, these cutthroats, they got afraid. They panicked. They've got this body with them. They've got this corpse with them. And they don't know what to do. They panic. We can't take him where we were going to take him. We can't go where we were going to go because of them. So what are we going to do? We can't have a funeral. What are we going to do? And so they said, we need to get rid of him. We need to put him somewhere, somewhere honorable, someplace that at least shows a little bit of honor, and then we need to flee. So they turned, they looked, they searched frantically and hastily, and they spied a sepulcher, a grave, a tomb. They saw the stone, more than likely, and said, now there is a grave. And so they went over, they rolled the stone away, and they just tossed this man in. And when they tossed him in, they had no idea that inside were anointed bones. Now, Elisha had had to have been dead for a while because it was bones. So he was there for a while. So they throw him in. They throw him in. They start to walk away. Now, y'all have got to use your imagination here because I always try to do that when I read these Old Testament stories, Elijah and Elisha. You've got to use your sanctified imagination here because stop and think about it. They throw him in. The Bible says the moment his dead body touched the bones of Elisha, he revived. Somebody say amen. amen. He revived. A dead man revived. Now, you've got to put yourself in two different sets of shoes, or sandals, I should say. Now, watch this. Imagine if you're the man. You're dead. You have passed away. Some sickness has taken you. You have already, your spirit has already gone to another world. Your spirit has already, if he was a believer, he'd already gone to heaven. He'd already met Jehovah God. His spirit went. Because, folks, listen, there is no such thing as soul sleep. When you die, your spirit, depending on the condition you died in, if you died a believer, if you're a believer when you died, your spirit immediately goes in the presence of the Lord. Immediately. There's no purgatory Purgatory is not in the Bible. There's no such thing as purgatory. You immediately, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, 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 you will be with me in paradiso, in paradise. Today, you're going to be with me. Paradise was just the New Testament word for heaven. He said to the thief on the cross, who turned to him and expressed faith in him, he said, remember me. He said to that thief, today, you will be with me in paradise. You know what today means in the Greek language? Today. It's not real profound. When a believer dies, when the body goes to sleep, you immediately go in the presence of the Lord. 
Your spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. That's why Paul said, I am torn whether to stay with you or to immediately go and be with the Lord Jesus. Paul knew to, to die was immediate gain. So the minute you stop breathing, the minute your heart stops on this earth, you go into the presence of the Lord. If you die lost, you don't go to hell because nothing is in hell yet. Nothing is in the lake of fire yet. The lake of fire, according to the book of Revelations, is waiting for the final judgment. And when the great white throne judgment happens, and all who have forsaken Christ, who have denied Christ, who have walked away from God, who have shut their hearts and their minds away from Him and walked their own way and gone off into sin and have never been born again. Listen, it says, those are the first ones after the devil and the, and the Antichrist. Those are the first ones that will go into the lake of fire. Right now, the lake of fire is untouched. You go, when you die lost, you do go into a place that is like a hellish waiting room. And it waits for the great white throne judgment. It's not purgatory. It is a hellish place. The book of Revelations talks about it. And can I just be bold enough to say today, there is only one way to avoid that place. There's only one way. You won't get out by your intellect. You won't get out by talent. You won't get out by looks. You won't get out by religion. You won't get out by the God of your choice. There is only one name given among men whereby we must, must be saved. But John the Revelator made it very clear. And I'm not digressing here. I want, to, I want to make a point. This man who had died and was in that tomb, his, if he was a believer, his spirit had already been in heaven. But John the Revelator made it very, very clear. When you die, when you die, if you're lost, you're going to be judged. And Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first ones judged and cast into the lake of fire. They will exclusively split the lake of fire wide open themselves. Then, all who have died apart from Christ will be put into that place. You say, Pastor Jeff, how could God put anybody there? He doesn't put anybody there. They put themselves there. They say, I don't want you. They say, I'm going my own way. They say, I don't want your promises. Don't want your Messiah. Don't want your blood. Don't want your forgiveness. I'm going my own way. I don't want it. They make that choice. But this man, put yourself in his shoes. He had his moment. His hour came. He died. And the next thing he knows, he is coming to in a tomb with bones laying around. And he sees his friends walking away out that hole. Come on, everybody. This is supernatural. You say, do you really believe these stories? Oh, yes, I believe these stories. You better believe I believe these stories. Of course I do. Do you really believe that somebody dead, just his, his body just touched the, the, the bones of a dead prophet and he came to life? Yes. Yes. Because listen, at the core and the heart of the Bible is the doctrine, the teaching of resurrection. If you don't believe in resurrection, you've got to take the New Testament, rip it in half, and throw it away. Because the New Testament is all about resurrection. How do we know that Jesus Christ was the Messiah come to take away the sins of the world? Because He rose from the dead. 
Last time I looked, Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Last time I looked, Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Listen, last time I looked, no world religious leader rose from the dead. There's only one empty tomb in all the earth. And that's the tomb of Christ. So, anytime you see a resurrection in the Bible, know something. It's like a sign pointing down the road. These Old Testament miracles of resurrection, it was God saying, I am the resurrection. I do raise people from the dead. And I'm pointing down the road to the day and the hour when the Messiah, who will be the resurrection and the life, will appear. All of these were types and shadows and signs pointing. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Everything else has been a sign, a type, a shadow, a foretelling of this one who was to come. But now I'm looking at the Lamb of God. When He walked down into the Jordan River to be baptized, the Spirit of God descended and rested over His head. And a voice was heard, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, the day is going to come when everyone in the grave is going to hear His voice. Not Muhammad's, not Buddha's, not any other man. His voice. And he, as he called Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus come forth. One day, Tish come forth. Jeff come forth. Ron come forth. Every one of us is going to hear his voice call our name and tell us to come out of the grave. That's the teaching of the Bible. So all of a sudden, here's this man. He hits those bones and he comes alive. Now, I don't know what he said. But he sees his friends walking off. I don't think they took the time to roll that stone back over. They were in a hurry. They were getting away from these raiders. And so they're walking away, maybe even running away. And all of a sudden they hear a voice. Now just imagine it. Hey! (laughs) I mean, you gotta think about this. I think first he's, you know, is this me? Am I, am I, (laughs) am I alive? And then he sees his friends. Hey! What do you think they did? What do you think? I mean, this is either night of the living dead or this is something where there was a real moment here. This was incredible. What do you think they thought when they turned around and this man who they had tossed into a tomb and given him a real quick burial is standing at the mouth of this cave calling for them. Don't you know they forgot all about those Moabites? They forgot all about their fear. They forgot all about... And don't you know that they had a major, serious Pentecost moment right then? I thought you said he was dead. He was dead. I fell. There was no heartbeat. He's been dead for days. What do you mean? I thought he was dead. Then what's he doing? Whose tomb? And as they inquired, they found out, ah... This was the tomb of Elisha. Now you know what this said to me? The sovereignty of God was moving behind unexpected trouble. Now I want you to listen to what I really believe God is saying to us out of this story besides the fact He's the resurrection. He is the resurrection. Don't you know they had a walk back home? 
Can you imagine the talk they had going back home? The sovereignty of God. Here's what happened. Now, at face value, looking at it through the eyes of carnal eyes, the eyes of the flesh, they had a very good plan. We're going to bury our friend. We're going to give him an honorable burial, a funeral. Here we go. And all of a sudden, they had unexpected trouble. Folks, let me tell you something. God is not hindered by unexpected trouble. In fact, do you know that many times the sovereignty of God is moving behind unexpected trouble? He is moving behind inconveniences. He is moving behind what looks like attacks of the enemy. And it may be attacks of the enemy, but what I want you to see today from this story is the sovereignty of God was moving, was moving. His hand was moving. Even though they encountered trouble and inconvenience and danger, the will of God was still done. In haste, they throw him into this tomb. They have no idea that God wanted him in that tomb. Can I say it again? God wanted him in that tomb. We serve a sovereign God. You know what God never says? I say this all the time, but I might write a book on this someday. God never says, well, I'll be. And he never says, oops. He never says, well, I'll be. God never says, well, I'll be. He never says, oh, no, what now? You know why? Because God is sovereign. Listen, Nahum 1, verse 3 says, the Lord has His way. His way, His way. He has His way. He has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He has His way in rush hour traffic. He has His way in conflicts with people. He has His way when we lose our job. He has His way when people come against us. The Lord has His way. He takes the whirlwind and weaves His will into it. He takes the storm and makes it submit to Him. He has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He never says, what now? He never says, oops. He never says, well, I'll be. He never says, what are we going to do? He's in charge. I want you to listen. Now, I think one of the hardest things to understand is the sovereignty of God. Because if He's sovereign, then how do all these things happen in the world? Let me tell you something about history. History, I promise you, according to the Word of God, is His story. Read the book of Revelation and tell me who's in charge. Is the devil in charge? He's a dog on a leash. Are demons in charge? So are they. Dogs on a leash. The Lord, listen to what it says in Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, according to the purpose, the purpose of Him who works all things. Can everybody say with me, all things? Now when I say the phrase all things, I remember Romans 8, 28. He makes all things work together. All Paul is doing is taking Ephesians 1, 11, and putting it another way in Romans 8.28, he says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's sovereign. Sovereign. So even in the whirlwind, even when they see these Moabite raiders, even when they feel their life is in danger, and they move in haste, and they just toss this body in the nearest tomb, God was weaving his will through all of that. You know why? Because he had a prophet in the grave 
to whom he had promised a double portion of Elijah's anointing. And when Elisha died, he had only performed 13 miracles. Elijah had performed seven. There was one lacking. So God said, even if my servant, my prophet is dead, I am watching over my word to perform it, and I'm weaving my will into every circumstance, and I am going to be sure my promise to him is fulfilled, even though he's dead. It's the 14th miracle. You know what that tells me? God, listen, you know what? I believe we, all of us here in this room today, are receiving some blessings because of people who have prayed decades, maybe even centuries before now, and their prayers are still operating in the spirit world, and God is still answering them. Don't some of you know that after your granddaddy or your grandma died, you got saved? It happened to me. And you know that part of the reason you got saved was because they prayed for you. And it didn't matter whether they were alive or dead because God watches over His Word to perform it. He's going to make sure it comes to pass. My grandmother, Grandma Wickwire, loved me. She called me Jeffy. I was her first grandchild. She used to get me on her knee and just love on me. I had no idea until years after I'd been saved that my grandmother, Grandma Wickwire, was a strong believer. My father finally told me that she never was without her Bible. She was never without the Word of God. She read it every day. She read it all the time. She used to quote verses to little Jeffy sitting on her knee. And I had no idea until way after I'd been saved that my grandmother was a believer. Now, do you think that part of the reason I got saved there in juvenile home when I was 16 years old, heard the Gospel, and out of 50 to 60 young men... I was the only one that stood up, the only one that went forward. I got saved. Two years later, I got called. Do you think that there were some prayers from a dead, gone, passed away grandmother that were still operating in my life? And God said, Grandma Wickwire prayed. I honor her prayers whether she's alive or dead. I am going to bring it to pass. And do you know, I believe that that's one of the reasons I got saved. He has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. When trouble happens, believe me, if you could see in the spirit world, you would see the hand of God weaving, plotting, bringing to pass, operating in the midst of that storm to bring something good out of it. The promise of God in Romans 8.28 is He's going to make all things work together. All things. That's a lot of things. That means persecution, rejection, heartache, disillusionment, abandonment. It means losing a job, being in financial straits, having physical trials, dealing with sickness and disease. God is able to make all things, all things, all things. He has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He works out His purpose. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. The devil is never, the devil never checkmates God. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Listen to these powerful verses. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Listen to the Word of God. Let me get to it real quick. Here we go. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Listen to what it says about Him. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, My counsel 
shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. The whole world is subject to the counsel and the will of God, ladies and gentlemen. I read the back of the book. I know who wins. And it is not the devil who wins this battle. It is God and His Christ who stand at the end of time and wrap the whole thing up like a scroll and bring in a new world and a a new heaven and bring us into a place of glory and bliss where there's no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more heartache, no more heartbreak, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more accidents, no more devil, no more demons. It is God. Do you hear that? From ancient times, when nothing is yet there, when the future is still in the future, God says, here is what will be, here is what I decree, and it will come to pass. That's why Philippians 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this one thing, he that has begun a good work in you is going to perform it. You know what God sees when he looks, looks at you? He doesn't see what you are. He doesn't see what you were. He sees what you're going to be. He's already looked down the tunnel of time. He's already decreed what you're going to be. You're going to look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus. You're going to walk in certain works and fulfill those works because we are walking with the God who is in charge of His universe. The devil is not. He is not in charge. Not at all. Not according to the Word of God. That's why Joseph, after he had been in prison, been through all of his trials, sold by his brothers, betrayed, heartbroken. Listen, if anybody had a right to be bitter and die an angry, bitter man, it was Joseph. His 11 brothers sold him into slavery, forgot about him, lied to his daddy, telling him that he was dead, never told his daddy the truth. They watched him go. Then he serves faithfully in Potiphar's house and then Potiphar's wife lies about him. He's thrown into prison for something he didn't even do. He's down in that prison for at least two full years. Then down there in that prison, he prophesies. He interprets dreams for the butler and the baker. They're accurate. They are let out of prison. And Joseph says, please remember me. And they forget him. Betrayed. Lied against. Forgotten. Turned away. Left to die. Left to rot. And yet Joseph... Joseph understood that God was sovereign and had his way and the world went in the storm. He sought God. What is going on with me? You gave me a dream. You told me I was going to rule over my brethren. You told me I was going to be in a place of power and authority. Where is it? What's going on, God? And God opened his eyes so that Joseph said to his brothers later, come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother. This is when he was revealing himself to them after they had been brought to Egypt when the famine would have killed the entire Jewish race. And now they know that he knows who they are. They know that he's looking at the 11 men that sold him up the river and left him to die. And they're terrified because they don't understand the ways of God. And they said, you're going to kill us, aren't you? And he said, let me tell you something. He said, now here's the deal. Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Watch this. For God sent me. God sent me. But wait a minute. No, Joseph. You got it wrong. You, you, you've, had a, you've had a stroke in Egypt. You've lost your memory. What's the matter with you? They sold you. Joseph said, no, 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 no. Because he has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And when my brothers betrayed me, 
turned on me, sold me into slavery, sold me up the river, left me to die, forgot about me, walked away, totally and completely betrayed me. God was working within that storm. And you know what? God took what was meant for evil and turned it for good. God sent me here because God knew that a famine was coming and that a mighty nation was going to completely die by starvation and not to mention the embryonic Jewish race comprised of his father Jacob and his 11 brothers who were the 11 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel that they would have all died by starvation and there would have been no Jewish race to bring forth Messiah if he hadn't been sent to Egypt gone through what he went through, raised up by God and placed second only to Pharaoh, the prime minister of Egypt, to oversee a seven-year program of saving food, saving grain, so when the famine came, he could not only feed all of Egypt, but his 11 brothers who would produce 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah among them, and out of Judah would come Messiah. And Judah would have died if Joseph hadn't been sent by God. Mm, Come on, everybody. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. And then, of course, his famous words in Genesis 50, verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Let me give it to you straight out of the Hebrew language. Here's what it said. Ye had indeed evil against me in your mind. You had evil against me in your mind. But God had it in His mind for good. To turn this evil, to turn this evil into good. To preserve alive a great nation. See, it doesn't matter what evil men have in their minds. When God's got something in His mind, He's going to overrule the evil in the minds of men. Come on, everybody. We've got to know that. They had it in their mind, you had it in your mind to destroy me, but God had it in His mind to take your evil and turn it. Turn it. As the rivers of water, it says, He turns the heart of rulers whithersoever He will. He just turns their heart. Everybody say with me, He's in charge. Through it all, listen, through it all, God was weaving His plan, creating a tapestry of wonder and beauty in Joseph's life. I like what one guy said. I wrote this down. John Flavel said, Sometimes God's providence, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. Meaning, you know, Hebrew word, the first letter is to the far right, and you read Hebrew backwards. Now, here's what that guy is saying. Sometimes you don't know what God's really doing until you get to the other side and you look back. And then, and then you see, here's what God was doing. And you see the hand of God woven within everything you went through and that God took evil intended by the enemy of your soul and intended by people and wove it and worked it and made it submit to his will and brought good out of it. Isn't that powerful? Now let me give you some real quick things that I learned from this. First of all, interrupted plans often conceal God's sovereignty. Interrupted plans often conceal often hide God's sovereignty. You know, folks, our best laid plans often are interrupted by God. You can have a great plan all set out, and you find out 
that as you get close to it, it completely falls apart, and you go, well, now where was God? Let me tell you something. If you've got a well-laid plan, and you're a child of God, submitted to God, following God, seeking God in His Word, in prayer, and your plans fall apart, you can say to yourself, His sovereign hand is somewhere concealed in these interrupted plans. You think you've got to... Listen, how many times have, have, have you looked for a job and it didn't open, and when it didn't open, you got another one, and you look back and said, thank God that one didn't open, because this one opened, and it's far better. Listen, interrupted plans often conceal God's sovereignty. They wanted to bury their friend at a certain place. But they couldn't get there because of these raiders. So they just tossed him into a tomb. And they found out that their interrupted plans concealed the sovereignty of God. Here's the second thing I see. When one door shuts, he opens another, and it's a far better one. Revelations 3, verse 8 says, I've opened a door that no man can shut. When God shuts one door, he opens up another one. And if it's not a door, it's a window. And you know what? It's always better than what you were headed for. Are you all hearing me now? See, they, they were doing a good thing. There wasn't anything wrong with what they were doing. They were honoring their friend, giving him a good funeral. They had the music ready, the eulogies ready, the obit ready. They're headed to the funeral. And their plans got interrupted. And that door was shut. But God opened up another one. He never says, uh-oh, what now? He knows what's going to happen before it happens. And He's already prepared for what's going to happen, what He knows is really going to happen. When you arrive in your future, you find that He's already there. That's why David said, He prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You know where God is right now? He's with you in your now, but He's also preparing for you in the future. And you know what He's doing? He's preparing a table. And you know what that table's going to do? It's going to make the devil eat dirt. He prepares a table before me before I ever get there in the very presence of my enemies. I think what gets the devil more than any single thing is when a child of God trusts God and doesn't waver and just waits for God to open a door. And see, we can't see what those in the spirit arena see. But, but those in the spirit arena see that while you're sitting there trusting God, not knowing what's going to happen, trusting in the Lord with all of your heart, not leaning to your own understanding, but you don't see the full picture, he sees it and he sees God ahead of you preparing a table, turkey, dressing, cranberry, potatoes, gravy, bread, butter. I want to go eat. <laughs> I just made myself so hungry. Oh. The table cloth is spread across the table. And God's waiting for your arrival. And you know what I think gets the enemy more than any single thing? He sees it and he can't do a thing about it but try to get you to not trust God. But other than that, he can't do a thing about it. And he's got to sit there and watch you gradually, by the sovereignty of God, be carried to that table. And he can't do a thing to stop it. That's the way God works. When God shuts a door, he opens another. And you know what? When our best laid plans fail, he has a better plan. That's why our best laid plans fail. Listen, <clears throat> on your greatest day, when you haven't messed up in a month 
and you've been in the Word every day and prayed an hour, and you feel better about your spiritual life than you ever have, on that best and finest day, you see through a glass darkly. Because we are finite. We're bound in this body of flesh. We see bits and pieces, just little spatterings and scatterings of what God's really doing. But we don't see the whole picture. We don't see the whole picture. We can't. So the plans that you prepare, that you lay out, you say, this is what I'm going to do. I believe this is right. And when that fails, you'll find God had a better plan. Now, they had a great plan. We're going to bury our friend. We're going to have a great funeral. But how could that even remotely compare to what happened when their best laid plans failed? The sovereignty of God stepped in. They throw their friend into a borrowed tomb and he comes back to life, resurrects, and they go back home with the dead man talking to him. What could compare with that? Not 300 great funerals with 300 great song specials could ever even come close to a resurrected man. So, hey, come on everybody. We're not walking with a God who's stupid. He is sovereign. Amen. Now the last thing I want to bring out of this story is he watches over his word to perform it. God's in heaven. Elisha's up there with him. I don't know if Elisha said anything. I don't know if this kind of thing goes on in heaven at all. I think for the first thousand years in heaven, we're just going to go, oh. And we're going to sing... But I think all these questions we said we're going to ask God, how come so-and-so wasn't saved? What happened here? No, you're going to go, oh. For a thousand years. Oh. I'm going to ask him about my aunt. How come she backslid? I'm going to ask him about how come he didn't provide that $50 when my bills were... No, 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 no. You're not going to ask all that. You're going to go, You're going to take the crown, throw it down. You're not going to have a whole lot to say. But now, maybe Elisha said, hey, you said double portion. I only performed 13. God said, I already know that because I watch over my word to perform it. See, my word is moving when you're not. My word is moving when you fail. My word is being performed whether or not you believe as excellently as you could or not because I watch over my word to perform it. I promise you a double portion. <clears throat> Elisha, you don't need to tell me about it. I'm already working. You see those guys down there going to bury that dead man? Well, they're going to pass your tomb. And I'm not going to let them get to the place where they want to go because I promise you 14, not 13. I'm watching over my word to perform it. I am tracking my word to perform it. I've got, listen, I've got satellite on my word to perform it. I'm going to perform my word. I'm going to, even though you're gone and dead and in that tomb, your body's in that tomb, your bones are in that tomb, you watch, Elisha, I'm going to perform my work. You see those guys? They're going to see those raiders, and I'm just going to weave my plan into that scenario where they think they're about to be killed, they're going to be in trouble, they're going to run and flee, they're going to uh, panic, they're going to toss a body into your tomb, and Elisha, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Because as soon as that dead body hits your bones... Your bones, I promise you, you, that I would do 14, not 13, double portion, nine-tenths, doesn't do it. It's got to be 100% fulfillment of my word. So as soon as that dead body hits that 
tomb, goes in, touches those bones. You watch, Elisha. He is coming back from the dead. As Elijah was honored in his ascension into heaven, I'm going to honor you in your death also by the resurrection of a man. You see, Elisha, it was in my plan that the 14th would be preserved and set aside after you were gone so that the world could see that I watch over my word to perform it. And in it goes. And out came a resurrected man. And God just put a big kiss on the life of Elisha. When that man came out, interrupted plans often conceal God's sovereignty. When our door shuts, he opens another. When our best laid plans fail, he has a better plan. And he's watching over his word to you to perform it. Say, Pastor Jeff, I'm real afraid that he's not going to provide because, uh, you know, I'm, and what you're basically saying is he's going to fail me. He doesn't ever fail you or me. And you know what? Technically, he doesn't even really do what he does for you and me alone. See, it's not that he's going to fail you he can't fail his word. And you're walking in his covenant. So it's not whether or not he's going to fail you. What you're really saying is, Lord, uh, I don't know where the money is for these bills. I don't know where the job is. I don't know where this is or that. And so what you're saying is this. I'm afraid you're going to fail me. No, because he's watching over his word to perform it. So it's not you he's going to fail or not fail. It would be his word he's going to fail or not fail. And he can't fail his word. So it is set in concrete. No, better than that, it's set in the blood of the everlasting new covenant. You will be provided for. You will be preserved. You will be taken to glory the day that you die or in the rapture. You have overcome the devil. You have overcome the flesh. You have overcome sin. He will always leave you and never forsake you. You have received the Holy Ghost. You have received His Word. You have received every promise in the book is yours. And He's watching over that covenant to perform it. If He did it for Elisha in the Old Covenant, where does that leave us? Taken care of. Blessed. And you're going to come out of that grave. You're going to come out of that grave. If He kept His Word to Elisha, He's sure going to keep His Word to Jesus. Amen? Can we stand together and give him praise? Can we just give the Lord a hand of praise? He's a good God. He's a good God. He's a good God. He's a good God. <coughs> He's a good God. Now let's just lift our hands to him and just say with me, Lord, I thank you. You do watch over your word in my life to perform it. Thank you for the 14th miracle that shows me you're sovereign. You're the door opener. And you are the provider. Now take a minute and just say, Lord, there's something I need to give to you. There is something I need to pray about. There's something I need to release to you. If you could keep your word to Elisha in the Old Testament, you can sure keep it with me.